good morning, everybody. God bless you. Thank you for being here. <coughs> Starts already. If you are visiting us this morning, I don't cough all the time, just most of the time. There is a contact card in front of you, and a seat in front of you. We'd love for you to fill it out so that we can get to know you. Um, we're doing more than just collecting information for our databases. Uh, we would love to be able to minister to any needs you might have that you haven't expressed. If you want to write it down in the card. And uh, if you want to leave your social security number, you can. But uh, no, I'm just kidding. Um, after church today, we are having a luncheon for our people who went to Israel. Um, they have some pictures they'd like to share and stories of our wild and crazy times. And you are welcome to come and be a part of it. Um, we have free sandwiches going on, and we will just enjoy our fellowship together and relive some of the things that we experienced in Israel. So, having said that now, um, Vince, are you ready? Uh, why don't we all stand, please, as we honor the Lord and honor His Word. We're going to be reading in Psalms 119, 129 through 136. Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. The entrance of your works gives light, it gives understanding to the simple. I opened my mouth and panted, for I longed for your commandments. Look upon me and be merciful to me, as your custom is towards those who love your name. Direct my steps by your word, and let no iniquity have dominion over me. Redeem me from the oppression of man, that I may keep your precepts. Make your face to shine upon your servant, and teach me your statutes. Rivers of water run down my face, because men do not keep your law. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning, and indeed it is our prayer to keep your word, to keep your word not only as we dwell here uh, in these walls and hear your word spoken through Pastor Dennis, but as we go out, and I pray indeed your, your word would take good root in us, and we would be lights as we go out into the world, that not only would we hear those words in our head, but we would live those things in our actions. And others around us would see your son in us and in our actions. So Father, as we, uh, as we get together, as we gather today in fellowship, we pray that you would bring through your Holy Spirit the power of your word to this congregation and that we would be blessed by the things that we hear. You are awesome in every way, Father, and we praise you. We pray this in your son's holy mighty name, Jesus Christ. Thank you. Okay. Um, we start our services by reading the Word of God about the Word of God to prepare our hearts to receive from the Spirit of God. We believe that all that good that comes from those who love the Lord and are worshiping Him here come through the Spirit of God working through the Word of God and the people of God. Okay. So if you're wondering why we do that, that's what we do and why we do it. It isn't just a religious thing. It is something that hopefully is touching you in your heart, at least preparing you to receive from Him. Um, St. Augustine said, to fall in love with God is the greatest romance. To seek him, the greatest adventure. To find him, the greatest human achievement. Would you agree with that? Yeah. A.W. Tozer said, nothing in or of this world measures up to the simple pleasure of experiencing the presence of God. Isn't that precious? Good stuff. But for a lot of us, those words are simply poetic feelings and are foreign to us. 
at times. One of the concerns that I have as a pastor is the busyness of life of so many in the body of Christ. How many feel like they're just a little too busy? How many buy those time-saving devices that make it even busier? Yeah, it happens that way, doesn't it? Uh, we're all slaves to the tyranny of the urgent, it seems. And that's just a fact of life. And oftentimes, and I'm in this camp, it leaves me feeling strung out, impatient, resentful, and empty. Um, one pastor confessed, I'm lonely, hollow, shallow, and enslaved to a schedule that never lets I didn't feel that way. Never felt that way. Yes, I know you get guys just starting college. You don't know anything about this yet. But you will. Quote Yoda. You will. You will. Okay. Why does it happen to us when we know better? Well, Andrew Murray summed it up like this. While trusting in their Savior for pardon and for help, and seeking to some extent to obey him, they have re hardly realized, they have hardly realized to what closeness of union, to what intimacy of fellowship, to what wondrous oneness of life and interest he invited them when he said, abide in me. This is not only an unspeakable loss to themselves, but the church and the world suffer in what they lose. Oftentimes, our witness to the goodness and the faithfulness of God is betrayed by our resentment and stressed outness. We don't seem to hide it very well. We tell people God is good and he is all the time good, that he is the author of our peace and our love, but we don't abide in him. We don't take the time to spend with him so that we can experience it. When life caves in, people are not looking for reasons. They're looking for comfort. You do not need answers. You need someone. And Jesus does not come to us with explanations. Have you noticed that? He comes to us with his presence. And like, his, like he said to Paul, my grace will be sufficient for you. And it's to this end that this study and this series of studies that we're doing, going through the tabernacle, learning how to pray, are presented. Oswald Chambers said, solitude with God repairs the damage done by the fret and noise and clamor of the world. That's where the heart is repaired, in solitude with God. And that's what I'm advocating that's what I'm admonishing you to do. To find that quiet time where you enter into his presence deliberately, mindfully, expecting to hear from the God who created you because he created you for that very purpose, for fellowship. And it's there that he will impart to you spiritual wisdom and discernment through his word and a peace that passes all understanding. It comes from being in his presence. So we're using the tabernacle as a pattern for that solitude with God, for that intimacy of fellowship, or as Phil Wilkin called it, the divine romance that we have with our God. Now, the last time we spoke together, when I was teaching through this, and that was before we left for Israel, we had gotten as far as the gate, the front door. Uh, turn to Psalm 104. We'll just review real quick on this. Psalm 100, verse 4. If you remember, the tabernacle was a portable worship center. Moses is at Mount Sinai. He had received instructions from God on how to build this tabernacle in which man would approach God. 
And the outside of the tabernacle, it was walled with linen sheets, if you will, or linen walls. And there was one place where you could enter in. And it says in Psalm 104 that we enter his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him. Bless his name. So when we have that devotional time, that quiet time, and you sit before God, we start off with thanksgiving and praise. We praise him for who he is, and we thank him for what he has done. We praise him for his attributes. They are immutable. They don't change. He is just and all the time just. He is good, and he is all the time good. He is compassionate, and he is all the time compassionate. He is merciful and peace-loving, and he is a healer. He is righteous, and he forgives sin. And more and more and more, more than we have time to go into today. Study and learn the attributes of God and focus in on that before you start giving him your laundry list of requests. You need to know who it is you're talking to. And you're talking to someone who loves you and has your best interest in mind and will withhold no good thing from you. He can be your provider. He can be your healer. He will be your peace. And even more than that, he is your righteousness. And if you have a hard time thinking on these things and don't know where to go in your Bible to find it, I, I suggest you find a good hymnal. Find a good hymnal that has some of the old-fashioned hymns. And in a good hymnal, it will have a topical index. And one of the topics will be the attributes of God. Read it. Read it out loud. If you know the melody, or even just think you know the melody, sing it. It'll be a joyful noise, right? But focus in on, understand what you're saying. So many of our conversations with people are mindless, aren't they? How are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Yeah, well, that's really good. What's going on? Well, you know, I ran over my dog yesterday. Oh, really? I'm going to be and we're hardly paying attention. We just can't wait to move on to the next thing. And we're off. We're thinking about other things. And oftentimes we approach prayer like that too. We're talking to God, but we're thinking of other things. You can't. You've got to discipline your mind to just sit and be quiet before the Lord. And I suggest that when you start your time of devotion and want a real sincere quiet time, just, just be quiet. Just wait on the Lord. Wait in silence. And then praise him. Does he need your praise? No. No, no. He's pretty self-sufficient. He, he knows who he is. And he has no self-esteem problems. But you need to remind yourself who he is. When you praise God, you honor him. You're giving him the praise that he is definitely worthy of. When you praise him, you remind yourself of really who's in charge. And that you're not on your own. Blessing God changes your focus from yourself to him. And we put the emphasis back where it should be. Praise relieves your anxieties. It clears your vision to see beyond your trials. It breaks the cycle of self-absorption, which often engulfs hurting people. It opens hearts to receive his love. It relaxes your fears and it allows you to enjoy his presence. That's what praise does. Like milk, it does a body good, right? C.S. Lewis said, in commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. Praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. Praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. I love that. So, we've entered through the gates and into his courtyard, into this portable tabernacle of worship. Or, yeah. We're there in his presence. Our mind is now rightly focused. It's time to deal with the only thing that can hinder your intimacy from here on and that's unconfessed sin, okay? 
So we're at the brazen altar. So let's look at Exodus 27, verses 1 and 2, and we'll get a, a, a quick overview of what the brazen altar is all about. All right? Exodus 27, verses 1 and 2. Verse 1, using acacia wood, construct a square altar seven feet wide, seven feet long, and four feet high. Make horns for each of its four corners so that the horns and altar are all one piece and overlay the altar with bronze. This is where the Lord met the people as they entered into the gate. And this is where he judged their sins. Now, that's what a lot of people think of when they think of God in Christianity, just judgmentalism. God judges people. And the first thing he judges you is you're sinful. You're sinful. Well, I guarantee you, if you had a guest show up your house, let's say there was a, a young man from high school that was going to come and have dinner with you. But before he got to your house, he went to the dog park and he rolled around into the dark park. And he has all manner of dog, you know what, hanging all over him. And he knocks on the door, and you open the door, and the first thing that hits you is the smell, right? Just knocks you almost over. And he starts to step in. What are you going to do? What's the first thing you do? Well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Hey, you ain't going nowhere. You're not going to enter in my presence and be and have fellowship with me, smelling and having that all over you. You need to be cleaned up. You see? Before we have fellowship with God, we need to be cleansed. Now, when you came to Jesus Christ and you accepted him, he forgave you of all of your sins, past, present, and future. But there's a need for you to continually to confess your sins, not that he needs to be reminded of what you've done. <laughs> you need to be reminded of what you've done and appreciate what has been done for you in his forgiveness. Plus, you need to be relieved of the guilt. And you also need to be forgiving for others. We'll talk about that in just a second. Okay. The altar was the place for burning animal sacrifices. It showed the Israelites that the first step for sinful man to approach a holy God was to be cleansed by the blood of an innocent creature. Now, what would happen is when you brought this animal in, priest would have you lay your hand on the head of this innocent animal, confess your sin, and then slit the throat. And you sat there with your hand on the animal as it died. Okay? Animal didn't do anything to you, didn't do anything to deserve to be killed. It was God's graceful provision for you to have your sin atoned for. You get that? You understand? That's what's going on. So you see, obviously, right, a type of Christ. He became sin for us, it says in Corinthians. And I don't know, I don't, I'm probably not with that up there, so I trust that you will help me out. Jesus was the Lamb of God, the ultimate sacrifice for mankind. Like Isaiah prophesied, he was the Lamb that was led to slaughter and pierced for our transgression. Mark 14, 24, Jesus said, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, foretelling of his death on the cross. First Peter chapter 1, he said, you know that you, For you know that you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And in Hebrews 10, he says, We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. By one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. So just as God dealt with the Israelites with grace by providing a sacrifice, Jesus became the sacrifice for us. His love provided a substitute. All right, now you got that in your mind, right? <coughs> Okay, and I hope you understand that it's no little thing to be, have your hand upon an innocent animal to watch it die. 
because of you. All right. So now we're at the altar in our time of devotion with the Lord where sin was judged. So since that's what happened at the altar, then this is where I confess my sins. Turn to Psalm 32.5, please. Psalm 32.5. And then we're going to go to Proverbs 28 and 1 John chapter 1. Psalm 32.5. The psalmist here is talking to God. He says, I acknowledged my sin to you. Another way to say it is I confess. And my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. The word transgressions there is willful sin. It's knowing where the boundaries are and going over the boundaries anyway. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Now pop over to Proverbs 28. Proverbs 28, 13. <coughs> he who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever hello, confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Okay, now, quickly, go towards the end of your Bible. <laughs> 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If you hit the book of Revelation or the maps or the concordance, you've gone too far. You need to make a U-turn. 1 John, in the back of the Bible. If we confess our sins, this is 1 John 1, 9. We call this the Christian's bar of soap. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Okay, if you've never sinned before, you have no idea what I'm talking about. If you are utterly sinless, you are probably confused. But if you have sinned at one point in time in your life, you've probably done it more than once. And you've probably done the same sin more than once, right? And you've probably felt pretty bad that you did it twice, three, four, five times, and you've gone to God and you said, you know, I, I just don't know what I'm going to do about this because I keep doing the same thing over and over again. And all of a sudden you have this spiritual mental imbalance going on inside of you and there's a warfare about it. But the bar of soap is still the bar of soap. If you will confess your sin, he is faithful, he is just to forgive your sin and to cleanse you. The word confess, the word confess in the Greek is homo legeo. It means to say the same thing as another, to admit the truth of an accusation. Theologically, it means to say the same thing about sin as God does, to acknowledge his perspective about sin and take ownership of it. Parents, when you've disciplined your children, wasn't the main thing that you wanted from them is just to own up to it? Just say, yeah, you admit that you did it and confess it, own it, and then we can move on. But of course, theologically, or not theologically, but stubbornly, we just hold on to it. I don't know if anybody, any of you are like this, usually it's people who go to other churches, but a lot of people are stubborn that way. We don't want to admit that they're wrong. Living together is called what in the scriptures? called sin. It has another name. Fornication. Unrequited anger is murder. Perpetual lust is adultery. Reallocation of company resources is called thievery. Theft. And unforgiveness <coughs> is unforgivable. Those things stink. And they should sting, okay? They should sting. We live in a generation where, well, Tozer said it this way, a whole new generation of Christians has come up believing that it's possible to accept Christ without forsaking the world. The Bible says without holiness, no one's going to see God. I mean, you're not going to comprehend. You're not going to understand, okay? Sin is sin. 
and it's sin. Well, sin is bad. And why is it bad? Because it's sin? No. Because sin destroys lives. It destroys people. It causes pain. And we do it, guys. Now, though sin is present, it doesn't need to remain a hindrance, okay, in your relationship with God. You can find complete cleansing as you confess your sins. Just own up to it. Confess is a verb, and it's in the present tense in the Greek. And that means that you confess and you keep on confessing. It's not just a one and done. Now, in one sense it is, because when you've come to Christ and you've confessed your sins before him and said, I am a sinner in need of a Savior, then you're forgiven. Your standing in Christ is that you are forgiven. Now, between now and the time you go to heaven, you're going to fail many times. Just like if you're a fourth grader and you're trying to graduate into fifth grade, as a fourth grader, you're going to fail many things before you get to the end of graduation and get into fifth grade. You see what I'm talking about here? So you're going to fail many times, although it's, it's pretty much it's a done deal. You are, you are forgiven for your past, present, and future sins. So why do I have to confess? Because you've lost your spiritual equilibrium and you've hindered your relationship with the God who loves you and can do so much for you and has so much waiting to give you. All right? Married people understand this. You could be in the same house with someone that you love very much, but there's a cold atmosphere, right? There's the silent treatment going on. You know something's wrong. And you know how you know something's wrong? When you ask the question, what's wrong? And you know what they say? Nothing. Right. And that's when you know, oh, there's something wrong. What do I need to confess this time? And you're hindering your relationship with God. The Bible says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, David wrote this, he will not hear me. In Isaiah, the Lord said, you know, my... My arms aren't too short that I can't help. My ears aren't deaf that I can't hear. It's your sins that are separating you from me. In other words, guys, he's holding you at arm's length until you deal with the issue. And your prayers are going to be hindered. Um, I don't have cable TV. I've got one of those antennas that you buy on TV that's supposed to get every single channel on the earth, right? And I've plugged it in there, and I put it up on one side, and I'll get three or four channels. But then I'll turn it on another channel, and all of a sudden, guys, anybody know what I'm talking about? All right. So I move it over here, and I get that channel, but then I'm missing all these other channels. Well, that's what happens with your communication with God. All of a sudden, the signal's being broken up. He hasn't forsaken you. He hasn't left you. But he's waiting for you to come to the place of confession. All right? Now, the altar is a place where we spend a minute or two asking God to search us, to know our heart. Psalm 139, 23, if you want to turn there. Psalm 139, 23. To search me, to know my heart, to try me and know my anxieties, and see if there is any wicked way in me, and then lead me in the way everlasting. You see, you need to go before God when you're confessing your sins and say, like, you know, is there a problem here? Are there any issues that I need to take care of? Sometimes we do offend our spouses and we didn't mean to and we didn't even know we've done it. Men, true? <laughs> and sometimes, <laughs> a little delayed there, okay. Sometimes there is something in our heart that God needs to deal with us about. So we need to go to him and ask him. Now, here's where I want to caution you. You don't need to do a lot of deep mining here, all right? 
if there's something, the Holy Spirit's going to bring it to mind and give you a sense of conviction over it. Um, Martin Luther used to spend up to six hours confessing sins. And most of that was time spent wondering if this was a sin or if that was a sin. He was lived in such fear of making God angry, so he wanted to live a sinlessly perfect life. And of course, all the other monks thought he was outside his mind, right? And I think you can drive yourself kind of crazy doing that sort of a thing. My, littlest, my youngest daughter, Heather, when she was three years old, we were saying her prayers before bed. And she started her prayer by confessing. Now, I, I'd never talked to her about confessing her sin. So somebody in Sunday school must have got a hold of her, right? Um, and she started saying, dear God, forgive me for hitting, spitting, lying, cursing, pushing, stealing, being mean, not sharing, and sticking my tongue out. She's three years old. When did she have time to do all this? She, was, she just knew what these things were wrong, and she didn't know whether she had done them or not, but you know, why not just get it all taken care of in one shot, right? If there is something that God needs you to confess, you'll feel the conviction. And when he does, take ownership of it and call it what he calls it, even if it stinks, even if it makes you feel very uncomfortable. Do it with a view that you want to repent. I want to change my mind about this. See, that's the thing about repentance change my mind about this so that you can change my heart about this and then my actions can conform to your will. All right. Now, once you've confessed it, you need to do the ELSA. What's the ELSA? Let it go. Let it go. So at the altar is where you confess your sin, and it's also where you deal with false guilt. The second half of 1 John 9 is still there in your Bible, guys. He is faithful and just to forgive you your sin. Romans 8.1 is still in the Bible. And if it's not, you're not sure about it, look it up. See if I'm lying or not. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. If you have confessed your sin, then he is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from, from all righteousness. Done. But some of us just can't let it go, can we? Our sins haunt us. Any true of any of you? Yeah, you ever driving down the freeway and all of a sudden a memory that happened in high school, right? And you cringe all over again. Can't believe you did that. You start feeling guilty about it all over again. That's just the enemy pounding you and laughing at you. No matter how many times you confess, it's like they say, guilt is the gift that keeps on giving. Right? But Hebrews 10, 17 says, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Hanging on to the past failures and sins distorts God's view of who we are in Christ. It distorts our view of who we are in Christ. He tells us that we're new creatures, saved and redeemed. The guilt and shame keep us from looking up into that beautiful face of love and acceptance. And by focusing on the past, we keep blocking God's future intent for our lives. Buying into false guilt leads to feelings of defeat and hopelessness and worthlessness and fear. People who struggle with lingering guilt often have a hard time accepting God's love. Can't imagine how the Lord could possibly use them for his glory, especially when they think about their past sins. And you sit there paralyzed spiritually, miserable spiritually. But you gotta think for a moment. If that was true, then God never would have used Moses or David or Paul or most of the pastors in the Calvary Chapel movement for that matter. Corey Ten Boom had a saying, God takes our sins, the past, the present, and future, and dumps them in the sea and puts up a sign that says, 
no fishing allowed. Of course, he's referring to Micah 7, 19. Paul said, forgetting those things that are past, I pressed on towards the mark. So if you have your faith in Christ and you've asked God to forgive you, the past is truly forgotten. God distinctly remembers forgetting it. He is faithful to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from unrighteousness, okay? All right. So in time of intimacy with God, you've spent a moment praising him for who he is, thanking him for what he's done. You've taken a moment and asked him to search your heart and reveal hindering sin. You've confessed it and you've been forgiven and you've accepted that forgiveness, ready to move on now. You come to the altar and you forgive those who have hurt you. This is a tough one for some people. I want you to go on a little road trip with me. Let's start in Ephesians chapter 1. Okay? Ephesians chapter 1. If you're looking for Ephesians, it's about in the middle of your New Testament. Okay? Galatians, Ephesians. Philippians, Colossians, God eats peaches and cream, right? Ephesians 1, 7. In him, who's the him, y'all? In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Okay, do you get that? Let that sink in. In him, in Jesus, you have redemption through his blood, forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Okay, that's truth. That is. Now, since that is true, look at chapter 4, verse 32. Since you have the redemption through his blood and you have the forgiveness of sins, Ephesians 4, 32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, and doing what? Forgiving one another even as God in Christ forgave you, right? And by the way, that's not a suggestion, all right? It's not a suggestion. It's something that he expects you to do, okay? You have the responsibility of fulfilling that. Turn to Matthew 6. Matthew 6, look at verse 12. It says in Matthew 6 that... uh, this is your prayer. Remember, he's teaching us how to pray. And, and in our time with the Lord, we've just asked God to do this, to forgive us our debts as we do what? Forgive our debtors. Now, look down at verse 14, because Jesus has a warning to those of us who, who just say we won't. Talk to a gentleman um, who was a Holocaust survivor. And um, we asked him if he could forgive those who had tortured him. And he said he would go to his grave. He would never forgive. Now, Matthew 6 says, verse 14, if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also what? Forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. What? Where did that come from? I mean, does that blow your mind, theology-wise? But I'm forgiven. Yeah. But you got an issue here. Look at verse th- chapter 18, verse 33. We have a little explanation of this. Matthew 18, 33. And if you remember, this is the parable of the uh, unfaithful servant who... Um, ended up getting in credit card debt of over a trillion dollars, right? And the IRS was coming to take everything away, but they had mercy on him. And then he went out and found his friend who borrowed five bucks from him to buy a Happy Meal at McDonald's. And he began choking him. Verse 33 says, should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had a pity on you? 
as his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. Now, I'm cool with this, okay? I get it's a parable, it's a story, and, you know, I don't know much about the reality of it, but, okay, we can stop there. But Jesus doesn't stop. Verse 35 is there. So my heavenly Father will also do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Do what? Deliver you to the torturers. Well, what does that mean? Honestly, I don't know. But I do know this. After 30 some odd years of pastoring, I can tell you that unforgiving people are the most bitter, tortured people I know. Needing medication or mood-altering substances just to get by day after day. The gentleman I told you about had to take some heavy medication to be able to sleep at night because of his anger and his bitterness. Hebrews 12.5 tells us that a root of bitterness will spring up and defile you. And that's what has happened when you do not forgive. You're allowing them, those who have hurt you, to live rent-free in your head and destroy your apartment. You may be suffering from their actions or their attitudes, but understand, you're going to be suffering from them for the rest of your life, whether you forgive them or not. You're better off forgiving them, because in forgiving them, you set yourself free. It's not about them anymore. It's about between you and the Lord. You must forgive to set yourself free. I told you about that young lady. I gave assignment to my Bible class that you need to go find someone who's offended you and forgive them. They hated that. They said, you know what? God's not telling me to do this. I held out the Bible and said, man, he told you 2,000 years ago. What are you waiting for? Well, one young lady took it very seriously. She went out and find the, the, the man who raped her when she was in fifth grade. And uh, she invited him to dinner. Are you kidding me? And she sat him across the table and he says, well, I'm really curious why you asked me to have dinner with you. She says, because I need to forgive you for what you did to me. He says, I don't know what you're talking about. He goes, yeah, you do. We both know. But God has forgiven me a great sin and I need to forgive you. And uh, she could care less what happened to him, but she said a, a weight just lifted off of her. It's like a ton of bricks gone. That's what forgiving does. Unforgiveness, well, it's like what happens to wolves that lick bloody knives. You've heard this story before? Well, the Aleutian Indians, they would, to kill wolves, they would take knives, coat it with blood, freeze it, coat it with blood, freeze it coat it with blood and freeze it and then stick it in the snow with the blade up. Wolves would come sniff it, sniff the blood and start licking the blood and pretty soon as they keep on licking and tasting the blood, they've cut their own tongue open and they're drinking their own blood and eventually they perish. And that's the way it is with unforgiveness, guys. You're torturing yourself. You're torturing yourself. Colossians 3.12 tells us, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, and long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. All right, you got that? So, we started this intimate fellowship time with God. We started with praise and thanksgiving. Got our minds off of us, totally focused on him. Come to this altar and spent a couple of minutes confessing our sins, accepting his forgiveness and forgiving those who have hurt us. Now, last thing that we do here. Did you know you guys didn't realize there's so much to do at this altar? Romans 12.1, turn there real quick. And this, we are really going to finish with this. I know that pastors say that all the time. And they're like these airplanes that keep circling the runway but never land. <laughs> Romans 12.1. Paul has just been spending 11 chapters telling them of all the good things that God has done for you. 
and redeeming you and saving you and blessing you. And then he says, I beg of you, please, or that's what the word beseech means. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies, what? A living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. It's reasonable now for you to offer yourself on that altar of sacrifice. Sacrifices that were offered on the brazen altar were not simply sacrifices to cover and atone for sin. They're also sacrifices of thanksgiving, sacrifice called burnt offerings, sort of some of the things that get put in the refrigerator and, and you eat them for leftovers, but, you know, you pray for them again, right? God, please do something with this. It, it wasn't so good the first time. I'm just kidding. Okay. This is where you settle the struggle of your will, okay? What you're saying here is that God... I'm a living sacrifice. You get to call the shots. You get the choice about the way I live. Presenting your bodies means that, that God wants you, not, not just your work. You can do all kinds of work for God, but never give him yourself. He wants you. That's why he created you. The will is to be the master over the body. The thinking of our age says that our body must tell us what to do, but the Bible says our will must bring the body as a living sacrifice to God. They say the body is a wonderful servant, but it's a terrible master. Keeping it at God's altar as a living sacrifice keeps the body where it should be. Um, Lisa um, Turkerst, I think that's how you say her last name, say, God, I want to see you. I want to hear you, I want to know you, I want to follow hard after you. Isn't that why we're having intimate fellowship with God? And even before I know what I will face today, I say yes to you. You got a yes face for God? Or are you struggling with your will? At least get to the place where you're willing to surrender what you can surrender. Settle the issue. Who's calling the shots? Remember the prayer? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy... Okay. The will of God, your will be done. Where is it done? Perfectly. In heaven. When you think of heaven, what do you think of? Pearly gates, golden streets, clouds, harps bonbons, right? It's a good, fun place. It's good to be. And that's where God's will is done perfectly. Get that through your mind, that when you surrender, it's going to work out for your good. Jesus said it, right, in the garden. Of, Nevertheless, not what I will, but your will be done. All right, there you have it. We've come into his presence with thanksgiving and praise. We've confessed our sins. We're accepting the forgiveness of our sins. We're forgiving others, and we're offering ourselves up as a living sacrifice. And so far, all you've done is spend seven minutes in the presence of God. You're well on your way to a time of intimate, satisfying, enjoying fellowship with your Creator. Next week, we're going to talk about the, uh, the labor and um, washing of the water of the Word. But I'm hoping you're beginning to see just how important or at least how valuable this knowledge is. I hope that you go home at some point in time and you deliberately set aside that time and you spend with the Lord and just find out how wonderful and precious that experience will be. Jesus taught that our highest priority must be our relationship with him. If anything detracts us from that relationship, that activity is not from God. Spurgeon said, God's thoughts of you are many. Let not yours be few in return. And A.W. Tozer said, my aim each day is to adore God more than anything else. Nothing wrong with that, guys. All right? Let's stand. And uh, hit the lights, Larry. And uh, we're going to pray. I'm going to pray for you. And then we'll sing the doxology together and we'll be dismissed. Let's bow our hearts, folks. Father, thank you for the blessed opportunity to share your word.
I praise you that your word is a spiritual living thing, that it doesn't return void, that it um, goes into the hearts of men and women and accomplishes the purpose for which it sent it. I pray that you have given me the tongue of the learned, as the prophet said, that I have spoken a word of comfort and perhaps conviction that the hearer may be comforted and the hearer may be drawn closer to you because of your love and your goodness. I pray for those who might be here, Lord, who don't even know what having a relationship with you is all about. I pray, Father, that they would just be able to come to the place where they can admit that they've been living life on their own terms and that that hasn't been working out so well that they're ready to turn their life over to you, that they believe that Jesus suffered and died on a cross to atone for their sins, and that you raised him from the dead in three days. And I pray, Father, that they would confess with their mouth that you are Lord, and therefore be saved and enter into that relationship that Jesus called being born again. And I pray for those, Father, who have been living in the world, maybe of the world, Father, having one foot into Christianity and one foot in love with the world. I pray, Father, that you would help them get to that place of complete surrender, absolute surrender to you, that they might enjoy life, that they might enjoy the fruits of righteousness and of holiness, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the gentleness, all of those wonderful qualities that come from the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, Lord. And for my brothers and sisters who've known you and been walking with you, I hope something that was said that was eye-opening to them, that they can't wait to get home and just to get quiet with you, giving you thanks for what you've done, praise for who you are, confessing any unconfessed sin, forgiving others and accepting the forgiveness that you offer and then offering themselves up as a willing sacrifice. So Father, what a good day it is. What a good day it has been. Bless them and keep them. Make your face to shine on them and be gracious to them. Lift up your countenance upon them and give them peace. And everyone said, Praise <coughs> God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above bless you. See you next week or in a few minutes or in the air. How about that? Amen.